pop here and there. Well, hey, good morning. I want to add my welcome to worship this morning. We're glad that you are here at Bethel Bible downtown. Thanks to Matt and our team for leading us in worship on all three floors. And thank you if you're on the third, second, or first floor or watching remotely someplace at home or on the road. We're delighted that you're here as well. We are in our sermon series, and we have been for now the fifth week in the little letter of 1 John. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. Somewhere between 2 Peter and 2 John, you're going to find 1 John. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that this is a letter from an old guy probably in his late 90s, and he's been writing to this group of churches to encourage them and to explain whose they are because of what God has done and so how they can enjoy and experience this life together as a result. Now, one of the interesting things about 1 John and pretty much every other book of Scripture is that it follows a pattern that is similar to the overarching pattern of Scripture, there is God, and it is good, and then there are people, and it is good, and there are fellowship, and it is good. But then this thing enters in that spoils the broth. The, the pattern and the, the contours of 1 John are very similar to the overarching narrative of all of your Bible. John has spent a chapter and a half already talking about fellowship, this thing called koinonia, the thing that we have in common. We actually have fellowship with God, the sovereign, good, glorious God of the cosmos. We have something in common with him. We are found in Christ, and therefore, we are to have fellowship with one another. But into that mix, just like in the book of Genesis, into that mix comes the problem of sin. And as we say all the time downtown, sin really is a big deal. It's a bigger deal than really probably any of us fully appreciate or acknowledge or accept. This is how Dallas Willard describes the problem of sin. He says, in sin, life is not controlled by the inner stream of the soul, but it is bound up in exteriors. And I want to see if you hear yourself in this definition, because I do. Sin is not controlled by the inner stream of the soul, but it is bound up in exteriors. Sin entices us to uproot our dependent life, pulling it away from God, and that deprives our soul of what it needs to function correctly in the enlivening and regulation of our whole being. It is exalting our will over God's. Oh, it's like he's been reading my mail from myself to myself. That is exactly the condition of sin. In other words, sin isn't just some bad things that we do every now and then. It's just not some, some stuff that we stub our toe or step in it. No, no, no. It's much more than that. It's actually a destructive force that separates us from God and from others. And remember, biblically, death is merely separation. Separation is death. And that's what sin does. Sin in our lives causes us to be out of fellowship. Out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with others. Now, we don't hear this a whole lot, but as a kid, I heard this all the time. Are you in fellowship or are you out of fellowship? Are you out of fellowship or are you in fellowship? You want to pray for us? I don't know. Can you pray for us? Are you in fellowship or not? And it was this almost heavy-handed legalistic thing where I was always walking around going, oh my gosh, I'm not so sure I'm in fellowship. And so I was always a little bit nervous. I'm not so certain that's a terrible bad thing, but I don't want it to be heavy-handed or legalistic, but it's a great question. 
Are we communing with God? Are we in fellowship with him? Or has there been some sort of dissonance? Sin disrupts our relationship with God and it disrupts our relationship with one another. It always splatters onto somebody else. So from our passage this morning, that's gonna set us up for our big idea and it goes very simply like this. Sin fractures fellowship. Sin fractures fellowship. But I don't mean it just sort of dents it or dings it. I mean like a, plain, like a plate glass window, it is fractured. Sin fractures fellowship. So I'm gonna join now with John and show you his recipe for how to fall out of fellowship. After he's explained all the wonders, all the goodness and the greatness of being in fellowship with God and one another, now he's going to enter right in and explain what it looks like. And when we fall out of fellowship, when we have fractured fellowship, we're not enjoying and experiencing the theme of his letter to these churches of the Roman province of Asia, which is abiding assurance. The moment we begin to follow that path, and to seek after sin, we lose our assurance. And so we lose joy, and we lose vitality, and we lose meaning. It's really a big deal. So I want to read our passage this morning. We're in 1 John, beginning in chapter 2. I'll start reading in verse 12. John's going to give us the purpose again and again and again, because remember, this is a circular letter where John will repeat himself. He's going to give us the purpose of writing this letter, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's interesting. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And then as Ashley summarized for us already this morning, beginning in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. We have to remember that the Bible is telling the story of the glory of God, but how sin, anything that proceeds apart from faith, entered in and basically wrecked all of the relationships. It fractured fellowship. And so from the fall of mankind that we see recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, we see God working relentlessly to rescue humanity from its own mess, even though humanity persistently rebels and doesn't deserve rescue. Now, we're not going to walk through it all right now, but in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, we see sort of the very first pattern produced of when sin and faithlessness enter in and how that fractures fellowship. It's a familiar story, both in the garden and in our own lives. There are Adam and Eve, perfect in innocence and purity, in the most, in, the most perfect environment imaginable. And yet the serpent very cleverly enters in and begins to sow this slight seed of doubt. Sin comes in in the form of the serpent, in the form of Satan, and it asks, is God really good? Can God really be trusted? And I would challenge you, 
Anytime you or I engage in sin, we have answered that question at the soul level. Is God really good? Can he be trusted? Something inside of us says, not good enough, and I know better. Sin enters in and asks, is God holding out good things from you? And Eve says, you know what, come to think of it, I think he is. Sin perverts God's good instructions. God says, you can eat of any tree here, just don't eat that one. And Eve takes that and she sort of ratchets up her own resentment. She says, God said we can't even touch it. It's not what God said. She answers inaccurately. And as soon as she and her husband eat, their eyes are opened to sin. We see that with Adam and Eve. We see that in our own lives. And then we are ever increasingly drawn to it. We try to use then, like Adam and Eve, a human solution to solve a human problem. They tried to cover themselves and to restore fellowship on their own and on their own terms, and God would not have it. They could not do it, and neither can we. And so, first sort of inline point of application this morning goes like this. Sin is where I pretend to be unaware and that God doesn't care. We're going to have a show of hands to see if anyone's ever been there. Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. Just me. Sin is where I pretend to be unaware and that God doesn't care. We rationalize. We declare something to be righteous. That is, we justify it in our hearts and our minds that God has not rationalized and God has not justified. We pretend to be unaware and that God doesn't care every single time ever. Or as one of my heroes in the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it this way. When we sin, it isn't so much that we hate God. It's that we choose to forget him. Man, I've been there. I know this song. It's me. But we aren't unaware. We know. And God certainly does care. So now let's look back at today's text and let's walk through this very quickly. Beginning in verse 12, it's sort of a hinge, this little uh, hymn that John writes. And you'll notice he sort of repeats himself and he gives three different categories, children, fathers, young men. And then I'll say it again, children, fathers, young men. Listen to what he says in verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. We have to remember what's going on in the Western part of what is modern day Turkey. They've gone through a church split. We'll find that out in next week's text. Not over the style of the music, whether it's drums or choir robes, not even over the style of the carpet. They've had a doctrinal divide. And some people have left this church. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone through that. It is a particularly painful thing. And it sows doubt. And it sows division. These are people that shared meals together, who gathered together often in secret to avoid persecution, who had done life, who had experienced fellowship together. But some doctrinal divide entered in and they split over it. And so they're beginning to experience angst and anxiety. And so John writes to them creedily. Now, when I say creedily, he writes to them in a way that they can easily remember this and easily repeat this. So he calls them children and fathers and young men. And then children and fathers and young men because he wants them to remember this. Because repetition is the mother of learning. And so he says, little children, let me remind you of who you are. This is good apostolic and pastoral leadership, telling them whose they are and who they are. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In other words, let me remove the burden of you being the center of your universe. 
Your sins are forgiven, but not because you're so precious and smell so delightful. You're neither. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Don't forget that, he says. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That's interesting. He'll say this again in verse 14. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've known him from the beginning. He's connecting them to the eternal father. You know the truth. You are rooted in his character and in his goodness and glory and greatness and grace. I'm reminding you who and whose you are. There in verse 13. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You have resisted the slings and the arrows of the enemy, the little whispers that try to knock us off course. You've done this. You've done well. Now keep at it. Now, it's a lot of question about, is he actually talking to little children? Is he talking to older men? Is he talking to younger? No, no, no. It's best to understand everybody who's hearing this, everybody who's reading this in his day and now is included in these three categories. He's just talking about as we go about our spiritual growth, our maturity, our journey of faith. All of us go through these seasons. One time he'll say one word for children, technia. Another time he'll use a different word for children, paideia, to demonstrate that we're all going through this progression of spiritual maturity. We'll keep going in the second half of verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. It sort of flows a little bit more lyrically and rhythmically if you read this in the original. But again, he's teaching them creedily, things that they can latch onto and remember. We try to do that a lot downtown. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. There's that word abide, to remain, to bear up, to dwell, to be, to exist, to live. That's where the word of God lives, is in you. And you have overcome the evil one. What's our defense against the dark arts, we might say? Having the word of God dwell deeply within us. Now, having that hinge from the love of God has it manifest into loving others. Now he's going to transition and pivot to this is what it looks like when fellowship is fractured. We're going to move to verse 15. And by the way, verses 15, 16, 17 are super central verses for understanding our present condition in the world. Can't overemphasize 1 John 2, 15 to 17 enough. This is in verse 15. Do not love the world. And as Ashley's already clarified, in this context that has to do with the world system, with the book of Revelation, also written by John, will be that which is Christless in the world. Worldliness is when righteousness is deemed wicked and wickedness is deemed righteous. See also the 21st century. Do not love that system. Do not adhere or attach or affix yourself to that system. Worldliness, in John's writing, is Christlessness. And as Ashley's already mentioned, when it says in John's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, that has to do with the population of humanity, not the system of Christlessness or Messiahlessness in the world. John says, do not love the world. Cut those heartstrings which will so organically and naturally grow into the system of this world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't be drawn by exteriors, which we all are. Why does John say don't do this? The same reason you parents tell your kids not to run with scissors in the house. Because they are. 
You don't wake them up in the middle of the night and go, don't roll my scissors. That's creepy. You tell them not to do the thing that they're doing. Don't love the world or the things of the world. John understands. This old guy looks at him and says, oh, you're beginning to put down roots and you're beginning to find your comfort and your solace and your meaning and your identity in the stuff of this world. Don't do that. You're being ruled by exteriors. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why does he say it that way? If we love the world, the Father's love isn't in us. Woof! Isn't that harsh? No, because that means that we are seeking to fulfill our good, God-given desires with the stuff of the world. So, so hear this very piercingly and penetratingly. To love the Father is to seek to have our desires fulfilled through him and not settle for any other source, which we all have a tendency to do. Now, verse 16, this is the central hinging verse of our whole passage this morning. Verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, and we get these three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. If I could creedily repeat myself or be redundant or say the same thing over and over again, I would. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Like, let's say it all together. Let's, no, let's not. The word he uses here for strong desire or lust is epithumia, which is not in and of itself a bad word. Jesus has epithumia to eat the last Passover with his disciples. So it gets translated as lust in some translations in English, but it just means intense, strong desire. The lust or the strong desire of the flesh, the cravings of sinful humanity. These are basic human desires that God created us with, and they're good of themselves. They're good. They are opportunities for him to fulfill us. So let me say that again. These are good desires that God creates in us. Food, drink, relationships, pleasure, all those things are opportunities for God to fulfill us. But here's where sin come in, comes in. Another point for us. Sin is the human decision that something is good apart from God. Sin is the human decision where I decide, this is not how God wants to fulfill this in me, but I say that it's good. I'm God. I say what's best for me. I know what's better. I know what's better. And you hear yourself in your soul and you think, I sound like an insolent child. Yeah, that's right. And we do. Sin is the human decision that something is good apart from God have nothing to do with the strong desires of the flesh or the lust of the eyes, the strong desire of the eyes, he says there in verse 16, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Ah, this is cosmetic surface appeal. Hey, Adam and Eve, I don't want you to eat from that tree way over there, but it looks so good. And their eyes were opened and they couldn't unsee it. And so we fix our eyes on things that are more noble and more lovely and more beautiful. The strong desire of the eyes. This is cosmetic surface appeal. I see it, and then I want it, and I feel like I'm entitled to it. Every toddler feels this way, and most adults. I see it, I want it, I deserve it, I'll have it now. Thank you very much. And now we have things called Amazon.com, which means you can have it same day, whatever it is. The lust of the eyes or the strong desire of the eyes. I can have it. I'll be happy. I'll have peace. I'll be defined. I will be fulfilled. And it's a lie. And we become ever increasingly 
the people of the lie that tell us that we will find fulfillment in these things. So next point, sin seeks beauty only in creation, not in the creator. We all know people like this. They sleep on our bedroom pillows, our own. Sin seeks beauty only in creation, not in the creator. That's why we settle for all sorts of illicit visual stimuli. I won't get into that now. You can use your imagination. And then there's the pride of life, he says, again in verse 16. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is boasting of what one has and what one does to give ourselves counterfeit meaning. Pride in possession, pride in ownership. It's the definition of accomplishment and control. Look at my sovereignty as though I were actually God in my life. The pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. John says that way leads to death. That is separation. Separation from God and from one another. And the world is passing away. Why would you hook your wagon to a train that's going off the cliff? That's dumb. The world system is passing away, and it's already begun. As C.S. Lewis said, the rightful king has landed, and we are to be about his program of sabotage. The rightful king has landed 2,000 years ago. The light is dawning, he said last week. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever lives, exists, dwells, remains, bears up under forever. These three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are ancient. They hearken all the way back to Genesis chapter three. So long as we remain in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil will always be working against us. If you've ever had the misfortune of sitting in a session with me for counseling or any kind of conversation about what's going on, I'm Almost certainly, some of you can attest to this, I'm going to bring up the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These three forces are always relentlessly, 24-7, going to be arranged and arrayed against you. You will not have any respite from them. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always be conspiring against you at some degree or another. We know this. Don't be surprised by this. It's always going to be happen, happening. So what do we take away from this text very briefly? Again, our big idea is that sin fractures fellowship. So how do we actually then stay in fellowship? I have carried these around now for many decades. I was taught this as a little child in my home church, and I hope that these are still relevant and salient for you. Three things that we do to stay, to remain, to abide in fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. Number one goes like this, reckon. Reckon what Christ has done. This is an accounting term. In your New Testament, the Greek word would be hegomai. It's where you make an accounting decision to reckon something as such. You reckon what Christ has done. He has been made sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. You make that decision. Oh, wait a second. Jesus has done us something. 
When we begin to fracture in fellowship, when we begin to fall away, we reckon what Christ has done. He has reconciled us to the Father. He's removed anything that might stand between us whatsoever. So how do we do that? How do we reckon? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We confess our sin. We speak the same word as God says, that there is nothing good in me of my own merit, but that he sees me and finds me in Christ. We confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we reckon what Christ has done. As the enemy assails us, as the world, the flesh, and the devil comes at us, we reckon, 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 reckon. Oh, what Christ has done, it is finished. And I have to tell myself this on a moment-by-moment basis. Oh, Christ has reconciled me. Despite all the reasons he should not have, he did. We reckon what Christ has done. Number two, we remember. So we reckon, and then we remember We remember who God is, who we were, and who we are. That great story of grace. We remember who God is, who we were, and who we are. He is God. He is great. He is good. He is glorious. He is gracious. Now, I don't know about you, but I can certainly just sort of pen my own journal here and and share this with you. When I forget that he is good, I grow bitter. I think that he's holding out on me. When I forget that he is great, I grow fearful. I'm not so sure God's got this one. When I forget that he is glorious, I forsake him and I substitute him for something less awesome. When I forget that he is gracious, I go into self-pity and self-loathing. I did it again. I said it again. I thought it again. I have to simmer in my own shame grease for longer because I forget just how amazing his grace is. But I love what the Bible tells us. And I love how Tim Keller tells us the story and the purpose of the Bible. Keller says it this way. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. Hope we all hear that. Hope we all receive that. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness. Otherwise, you would never be able to overcome. That's what the Bible is showing us. There's fellowship. There is good. There's relationality, and it's perfect. And then Genesis chapter 3, sin enters in, and God works relentlessly by his grace to break in and woo us back to himself. Who were we? As we remember this, we were sinners incapable of honoring or pleasing God. Who we are, John tells us, we are children, fathers, young men, or those who are loved by God, sons and daughters, accepted because of the Father, and so there is joy. So how do we stay in fellowship? We reckon, we remember, and then thirdly, we renew. Reckon, remember, renew. John taught creedily. It's a good practice for us to do as well. We reckon, we remember, and we renew. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our thoughts and our feelings matter to God. Our thoughts and our feelings, quite literally at the soul level, lay the pavement stones of where our future thoughts and feelings will go. I can't stress or emphasize that enough except to repeat myself louder, and so I will. 
our present thoughts and feelings lay the pavement stones of where our future thoughts and feelings will go. It matters. If you and I allow ourselves to be inundated by all sorts of varying forms of content that is bad for us, that sets the stage and it paves the stones for our minds and our hearts to go that way in the future. It really does matter. There is a neuroplasticity of our minds, of our brains. The more we engage in this content, the more we will engage in this content. I hear people all the time saying, oh, I watch those movies or I listen to those songs or I do, and I can handle it. <laughs> Who do you think that you are? You are a human being. You are laying pavement stones for future thoughts and feelings, which will lead you into a fractured fellowship, which is separation, which is death. It's that big of a deal. And so we say this all the time. Instead, like David in the Psalms, we preach sermons to our own soul. We talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. We tell our things, the true things about who God is and what he has done. See, sin fractures fellowship. But Jesus, we've already read it. He's the reconciler. You see, Jesus is the answer. And I do not say that tritely. Jesus truly, really, practically is the answer. This is the point of the gospel writer Matthew and the gospel writer Luke. Both of them in chapter four tell us of the story where Jesus is led immediately after his baptism right out into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. We're supposed to lay that right on top of Genesis chapter three. Eve is approached by the enemy and she gets the first answer right. Oh, she must have been so proud. Be careful when you're right, you're about to be wrong. She gets the first answer right, but then fails miserably. Jesus is led out into the wilderness immediately after his baptism where the father said, this is my son, I love him, listen to him. He goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted three times. Please don't misunderstand the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The first is, hey, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. You can change that rock into bread. Ah, it is the lust of the flesh. And Jesus answers accurately with scripture and says, no, I will not succumb to the craving of my flesh. There is something that is more. So the enemy hits him a second time. Take yourself up on the temple, or no, sorry, take yourself and bow down and worship me. I am beautiful and I will give you all of this. Lust of the eyes. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. They will be yours if you but worship me. Jesus answers accurately with scripture. He says, I will not succumb to the lust of the eyes. Ah, then take yourself up on the temple and throw yourself down and the angels will have to rescue you. Jesus answers accurately with scripture and says, I will not succumb to the pride of life. What I own and what I can accomplish, I will not succumb to that. And he answers accurately with scripture. And Jesus is the only person in all of human history who actually knows just how strong temptation is, as C.S. Lewis says, because he resisted to the very uttermost parts. All of those temptations of Jesus are just like John describes in chapter 2, verse 16. It is the temptation to disconnect from God, to uproot your life, like Dallas Willard says, and to take it on your own. 
Jesus is the answer. He is our example. He's our model. And he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate, to contemplate, to commemorate this Jesus, his life, his work. We're going to continue to worship together. I'm going to pray for us. And then at the conclusion of our prayer, we're going to have a song and we're going to have communion together. So don't rush off out of here. We'll give you some time to to think on these things. Now, sin fractures fellowship, but that Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word and this truth. That while there are so many things in the world and the flesh and the devil that seek to disconnect our lives from you, that you have sent your son Jesus, your sendable self, to reconcile us, to forgive our sin for your name's sake. And so now, Father, would you, by your spirit, among these, your people, because of the truth of your word, would you lead us, compel us even, to worship, to speak the same words as you, that you have become in the Son that which was displeasing to you and redeemed us to yourself. Father, thank you for loving us. Help us to love you in return. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.